Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. We're here with a special guest today, Dr. Angela Dills, who is Professor of Economics and holds the Gimelstab Landry Distinguished Professor Chair in Regional Economic Development. That's kind of a mouthful to say. At Western Carolina University. And you've been at Western Carolina for how long? I've been at Western Carolina for three years. Three now. years. Yes. Okay. And you're, yeah. one of the things that you have specialized in is the area of economic inequality, particularly as it concerns the gender gap or the presumed gender gap, pay gap between men and women in the workplace. So I, I thank you for coming on with us and really appreciate your expertise in this and the chance to talk about a very controversial subject. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So, g- given Angela, this is such a controversial discu- subject. Let's let's start with the facts. Okay. So, what do we know about the connection between gender and wages? So, spell out the facts for us. Great. So most people have probably heard a statistic like women earn 80 cents on the, for every dollar that a man makes. The number last year was 81.8%. So women on average earn 81.8% of what a man earns. Uh, and the way they come up with that number is, is what they're looking at is among all full-time full-year workers, they're going to take the median man and compare the median man to the median woman. Okay, now so, spell out what, what you mean by the median. Great. So that. to find the median man, they're going to take all the male full-time full-year workers. They're going to line them up from lowest earning to highest earning, and they take the person in the middle. Okay. So that the median man earns more than 50% of all men and less than 50% of all men. So that median man, we're going to compare it to the median woman, and the median woman earns about 80%, 82% of what the median man earns. That's a fact. Okay. Um, it's a fact that's frequently pre- presented in a somewhat misleading way, but among all men and women, women earn 82% of what men earn. Um, nobody's arguing that fact. That's the first thing we know. Women, on average, earn less than men. Okay. Uh, we know a couple other facts. Uh, one is that that gap has gotten smaller. It's significantly smaller than it was over over 40 years. Okay. So, uh, and and the gap is larger if we look at older workers than it is among younger workers. So the the gender wage gap is. What's the reason for that among, that it's, it's there's a bigger gap among older workers. How, How do you account for that? So the bigger gap among older workers is driven mostly by one big thing that ends up speeding into a lot of other things, which is that women have babies. So the vast majority of the gender wage gap today is really a motherhood wage gap. When women have children, their earnings suffer, and that gap sort of accumulates over their lifetime. So, um, And, and the, their earnings fall in, because some women leave the labor force when they have a baby to take care of their children. Or even if they're not leaving the labor force, they um, maybe are, they're still working full time, but they're working fewer hours than they were before. And those fewer hours mean they're accumulating less experience. They may be viewed differently in the workplace. And all of those things are leading to lower wages compared to their male counterparts. Okay. So, so, is, it this, so is this what is, what is commonly meant by a gender wage gap? So I, I think 
it's a tricky part to think what does the gender wage gap refer to. If you're listening to the media, if you're reading the popular press, a lot of them really are just talking about that 82% of, on average, women are less than men. When economists talk about a gender wage gap, they're generally talking about something a little bit smaller than that, which is if we took two comparable people in comparable positions and similar industries and occupations, how do their wages differ? Um, and, and, and so we can talk, but those are really two different things. Um, okay. The big gender wage gap that most people have referred to is that 82% number. Okay. But that's a, that's a pretty significant difference in how that's viewed. It is. <laughs> okay. So that, it uh, is. But that's, I think that's a part of what, what I want to get into in yes. this. So uh, uh, let me ask you a second question just about sort of w- what we know about this. Okay. The, the median discussion, I think, is really helpful mm-hmm. statistically. But what what are the things that actually determine what a person gets paid? Right. So there are two big items that are going to determine how much a person gets paid. The first is the characteristics of the worker, and the second is the characteristics of the job. So I'm going to take those two separately. Okay. okay so... Workers who have more schooling, workers who have more training, workers who have more experience, workers who have skills that are particularly valued in the labor force, particularly maybe quantitative skills, um, those kinds of characteristics of the worker mean that that worker earns more money. So if you go to college, most people go to college anticipating earning more money, Mm -hmm. there is a payoff to going to college. Um, So schooling raises your wages. Okay, so you would would you would it be fair to say that those all those factors you named mm-hmm. uh, would actually make a person better qualified? Yes, for, they make for them a particular more protected. Yes, yes. So all of those factors build what economists refer to as human capital. So they're mm-hmm. building the productive capacity of the worker. They make them more productive in their jobs, and it's because they're more productive, the employer is willing to pay them more. Okay. What about the second part? So the second part is the job characteristics. So people who work in less pleasant jobs, whether that's more dangerous jobs or noisy jobs or outside jobs or physical jobs, jobs that are less pleasant pay more because otherwise people wouldn't work in them. So economists call that compensating wage differentials. Part of your Uh, In order to induce people to take a dangerous job that has, say, some risk of death or injury, we need to pay them. We need to compensate them for them to be willing to do that. So such as a lot of fields that we think of as being very male-dominated, like being in the military or construction or mining or police officers, firefighters. uh, Those are dangerous jobs. Mm -hmm. There's some risk of death or dismemberment. And if we were to look at... Jobs that required similar levels of skills in other ways, though dangerous jobs pay more than less dangerous jobs. Okay. Okay. The other way we can think about it, which I think people um, sort of like the way it sounds less, is that if you're in a job that you love, that brings you a lot of pleasure because you feel like you're making a difference in the mm-hmm. world, that's part of your compensation. And so the firm doesn't have to pay you as much for you to be willing to take the job because you're getting compensated in your good feelings. So um, we think a lot of female-dominated jobs like teaching or nursing that you know, people take a lot of pleasure in the mm-hmm. difference that they're making in people's lives, and that's wonderful, but it also means that they don't have to be financially compensated enough in order for people to be willing to take those jobs. 
Um, so the job characteristics matter, and men and women take different kinds of jobs on average. Okay. So that would relate to artists, for yes, example. Who for get, example. I mean, I've got three kids who are artists. Um, <laughs> and, you know, God bless them. They're all making a living at it and doing great. It's wonderful. Uh, but they take immense satisfaction in that. It's what they've dreamed about doing. and. You know, and they're getting you know they're getting compensated for it. I think based on the what the market demand for them, uh, and they're all you know they're freelancers for the most part. So they they are you know they are fully entrenched in the gig economy. Um, <laughs> so it's not it's not like a company has to compensate doesn't have to compensate them quite as much. But they are, they, I think they are willing to make some financial sacrifices in order to do the things that they have been most passionate about for, you know, for, all, for most of their lives. That's a wonderful example. So they, it is a drawback of making a living on doing what you love, which is it may not pay that well unless you have really unusual preferences. If you love being an actuary, God bless you. You're here. <laughs> You're golden. You're here. <laughs> yes. Okay, so, <clears throat> I, I mean, when we talk about a gender wage gap, it's not, it's not uncommon for people in the media, um, people in other disciplines sometimes, to, to jump to that conclusion that because there's this median wage gap, that, you know, a 20 per, roughly 20% difference, that somehow that's the that's the result of some form of discrimination against women. How, how do you assess that claim as, as an economist? Uh, because surely there are instances where that claim is true. Yes, and I think that's the challenging part of kind of negotiating this conversation is that there is a wage gap and some part of that wage gap is discrimination we know some from some very good evidence from audit studies from lawsuits from um experimental evidence that women are discriminated against and it shows up in their earnings but that's only a small piece of the story a bigger piece of the difference that's driving the wage gap are the different um jobs that women and men have at the different job skill characteristics that women and men have. Um, and in in-depth in discussions of this gender wage gap, some of that is also a question of how much of those choices are personally driven choices versus choices based on anticipated discrimination, for example. So. Okay. So g g give us some examples of uh, a wage gap or wage difference mm -hmm. that you would say is based on on gender discrimination. Um, actually, not quite sure I understand your question. Um, like a specific case where yeah. we know that it's happened. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so um, one great study that happened was uh, maybe mentioning artists was among or um, applicants for an orchestra. So mm -hmm. they used to be that you would stand on stage in front of the judges, you would play your instrument, and they would decide who would be able to join the orchestra. They decided to change it and put a screen in front of who was playing so you couldn't identify the person playing. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that women were much more likely to get hired once the screen was placed there. Playing wasn't any different. The only difference was the judges couldn't see who was playing. 
Um, and, and so we know from studies like that that discrimination happens and um, that we can make some changes to reduce it. The other big source is probably, um, so I mentioned audit studies. So a lot of times what these audit studies look like is researchers will mock up a bunch of resumes. They will look exactly the same, but some of them will have male names on them. Some of them will have female names on them and they'll send them out and see who gets called back and, and who gets hired. Well, uh, who mm-hmm. gets called back? Mm-hmm. You can't. They're fake mm-hmm. resumes, so yeah, nobody's yeah. getting hired. But yeah. uh, in some cases, they'll train graduate students to go and apply for jobs and sort of do so in a very um, systematic way in terms of how they're presenting themselves and how they're talking. Um, but they'll send some male graduate students and some female graduate students and see who gets the jobs and how much what their offers look like. So those those kinds of audit studies also tend to find that women are less likely to receive offers or receive lower offers. Okay, but you say that's only a that's a that's a piece of the puzzle, but a small one. It's a small piece of the puzzle. A lot of what's driving the difference are um, differences in hours worked and differences in industries that, and occupations that people are choosing to go into. Um, men are much more likely to work long hours, and there is increasingly a very large return to working long hours, where long hours is working more than 50 hours a week. Um, and that's driving some of this. And then men and women are choosing different occupations and men are tending to sort into professions that are higher paying professions and women are sorting into ones that are lower paying professions. Okay. Do you see that changing? Yes. Over the last, what, 20 years or so? Yeah, certainly over the last 30 or 40 years, it's changed a lot. A, a big part of the reduction in the gender wage gap happened in the 80s and you can see um, a huge change, too, in the kinds of subjects that women are choosing to major in in college. We see big switches and um, more STEM types of more things. STEM types of fields uh, like biology is a big it used to be heavily male dominated. Now it's heavily it's it's majority female. There's some fields that are still heavily male dominated. Engineering is mm-hmm. very male um, computer science is an interesting field in that it went from 10 percent female to maybe 30% female, and then it dropped back down Hmm. again. And and so there's some fields that are a little bit different, but uh, certainly we've seen some changes in women going into fields that are historically male-dominated. But there's still significant difference in the kinds of occupations that men go into and women go into. Okay. And and you you would say those are primarily driven by... Uh, the, the fact that women have babies and men don't, um, and the, some of the choices that are made, or is it more complicated than that? I suspect I, that most 18-year-olds, when they're choosing what to major, maybe aren't thinking about babies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of them are. Some of them are thinking, I want a career because I know I'm going to have a mm-hmm. family, and yeah. I want a career that's family-friendly. Um, and, and I'll come back to that in a little bit. I think that why women choose some majors over others or choose some fields over others is part of what we're still trying to figure out. Economics, for example, is still very male-dominated, and there's a lot of interest in trying to bring more women into the field, but that hasn't really changed for economists for 20 years, maybe, which is um, frustrating to the profession, Uh, and we can't quite figure out why. Um, We know that 
college students, female college students, are very sensitive to getting bad grades, and they take that as a sign they shouldn't major in econ, but economists are really good at giving bad grades. <laughs> so, um, but And men don't seem to have the same response to getting a B as women do. And, and hmm. you know, so we're... I, I, some of that, I think, we're less clear as to who, why the choices are being made initially. Um, some of that may be climate. I mean, certainly we hear horror stories in some fields mm-hmm. about how toxic climate, the, the work climate is in some disciplines, in some fields for women. Um, and I, I don't doubt that that is part of the story as well. So. Now we, hear, we hear a lot about a, a glass ceiling yes. for women in the, <laughs> the C-suite, the executive suites. Um, how, how do you assess the claim that that glass ceiling is due to gender discrimination? Yeah, so I think that's one of your hardest questions. (laughs) I think there's two parts of it that, two pieces of evidence that sort of come to bring to bear on that question. One is uh, this question of overwork. So being in the C-suite suite takes a lot of long hours. It takes a lot, large commitment to your job. And in most cases, that means having someone at home to help run the rest of your life, making sure there's meals, cooks, or if you have if you have children, the children are taken care of. Um, and and men are much more likely to have that person at home doing those for them, and they're so they're more likely to be willing to work those long hours that it takes to be a, a C-suite executive. I, I suspect that's part of the story is sort of this leaning in or not leaning mm-hmm. in tendency of, of, mm-hmm. of women. Um, but there's also really the, the social science, like all of the social scientists are sort of working on this question. So there's also really interesting research in psychology that shows if you took a job, a description of a two people and changed their names and, and, and indicated here's a really capable person. How do you, feel about them when women are described as being very capable they're viewed as not very nice (laughs) and when men are described as being very capable nobody thinks anything of it and so i I do think there's some of this is attitudes about uh sort of promotability and and of women of women in leadership roles that i think is still a sticking sticking point for some women so what i what i'm hearing is the suggestion that there's still a, a double standard that's applied to to women in the workplace with some of the some of the traits that would be either neutral or complementary about a man would be taken negatively about a woman. Yes, is that true? I think I think that's what the psychologists are finding. Yes, that's true. Um, and it's a tricky line to walk in if you work in a field that where your output isn't that measurable, right? If what you're doing is fixing windshields or making widgets in a factory, we can see how productive you are and we can pay you accordingly. Your employer can pay you accordingly. If what you're doing is providing a vision and leading a team, you know, it's a lot harder to measure how effective you are at that, how much of that is your effectiveness as a leader or your team's effectiveness. And so when your production is hard to measure, it's easier to let your implicit or explicit biases drive your mm-hmm. behavior. Okay. I know this is some, we, we hear this among 
you know, college age women mm-hmm. who I think, I think un- understandably have concerns about how they're perceived because things that would be said about a man that they're, you know, that they're um, driven or, you know, they don't, you know, they don't take nonsense off of, off of people, um, you know, those, you know, those kinds of things would often be said of a woman, well, she's arrogant and overbearing or sometimes even less, you know, sure. more derogatory than that. <laughs> Assertive um, seems to be a word that applies very differently yeah. for women than men. Yes. And so, so you see that as still, I think it's still, still a factor. A factor. I th- although I think it's changing. I think if you look, even if you look at sort of popular culture in the 80s and, um, you know, women who were in the work in professional roles in the workplace did that by pretending to be men, right? And and wearing dressing like a man and trying to act like a man mm-hmm. and 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 I think it was a reasonable way to try to integrate into a workforce that was you know very male dominated. And I think now we're kind of and I'm talking outside of my role, I guess, as a researcher. But I think now the culture has kind of shifted towards well. Yeah, but we're different, right? We we have our mm-hmm. own strengths and skills. I don't need to pretend to be something that I'm not. I, I but I, you know, can I find a way to lead that's me and is accepted? And and I think that's a great shift culturally of of sort of women leading in their own way, just as men are leading in their own way, and bringing mm-hmm. you know finding ways to bring those strengths to the workplace. I remember you, you know years ago one of, one of the classic cases on gender discrimination mm-hmm. was in the, in public accounting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, case of Ann Hopkins, where she was denied a partnership because she was rude, arrogant, overbearing, uh, many of the same traits that would be used positively about the men in in her firm. Uh, And she sued successfully. Uh, The partners also said some other things that were, you know, very clear to be gender discrimination. but I think that she was a good example of what you're describing, of someone who was just, you know, she realized that in order to compete in a man's world, she had to be a man. Yes. Uh, and, and it's encouraging to see that changing, that w- women are, are feeling more comfortable in their own skin in the workplace uh, and allowing their own, skill, their own, their own yes. skills and personality to come out. And, and do, you, do you see us appreciating that in the workplace more for what it is? More. But a ways to go. I mean, I think there's still a ways to go. But I I mean, I do think the climate has gotten a lot more favorable to women than it than it was 30 or 40 years ago. It's a very different, um, very different culture in a lot of good ways for women. So So considerable progress made, but still a ways to go. So here's I mean, I hear people say this all the time. If men and women are doing the same job. They should be paid the same, right? I completely or, or, agree, absolutely. But or, I'm gonna, or is it more complicated? Well, than that? so I would add one little qualifier, which is that if men and women are in the same job and producing the same, they should be paid the same. But what's really challenging here is even if we looked at full-time workers, you know, men on average are working you know, 10% more than women are in terms of hours every week. And, you know, then the question is, are they more effective? Are are those actually productive hours, right? So are women getting the same amount of work done in fewer hours? In which case, yes, of course, they should be getting paid the same. Um, But 
but productivity matters, right? It ma your employer is only willing to pay you as much as you are increasing their revenues by. If, you know, if they pay you more than you're increasing the revenues by, they're losing money by having you as an employee, and they're just not going to be willing to do that. Uh, so it is important to think about how productive your workers are. So there might be, there, you would suggest there might be limits to the degree to which employers are going to be willing to restructure the workplace to be more friendly to women who are making those choices. I actually think that, um, you know, so, so a lot of the reason it, it, women are working fewer hours is because they're also dealing with family obligations, household mm -hmm. obligations, and um, someone has to do that work. So, and historically it's been done by women. So in a lot of households, it ends up being done by women. Not all, something like 16% mm -hmm. of stay-at-home parents now are men. So, you know, that's also changing. But if the work has to be done, the question is sort of how to split the work, right? And in a lot of households, it ends up being predominantly on one person. I suspect, especially if you look at young people these days, a lot of them want a better balance of work and life. They want to be an artist and pursue their passions. They want to go hiking on the weekends. They don't want to be tied to work constantly. So even though we tend to frame that discussion about work-life balance and more family-friendly workplaces in terms of women, I think there's a lot of benefits to men as yeah. well. And being able to make different uh, or a wider variety of choices about how they spend their time. So, two, two more questions. Sure. Um, what, are, what are you encouraged about by trends in the workplace in the way women are, are being treated and the way women are being esteemed in the workplace? What, what, what gives you hope and encouragement? So, I think if you look at really young workers right out of college, 20-something-year-old workers, the gender wage gap is very small. Uh, once we're comparing people in similar occupations in particular, but even outside of that. Um, but I think what I find particularly encouraging is seeing women and men sorting into a wider variety of professions because I think it's good for everybody. It's good for people to be able to do a job that they love, that fits their skill sets, that allows them to flourish at work um, because I think that makes people happier to do work that they love. But it's also good for us as consumers because it means they're more productive. If, if we have people who are, if we have women who are bad at nursing or just doing nursing because that's what women are supposed to do, quote unquote, that's not good for anybody. It's not good for her, but it's also not good for us. We get bad nurses, it's right? Not it's not good for me as a patient. <laughs> right, right. We'd rather have her doing, being a civil engineer or whatever might be a great fit for that person. Uh, so I think it's good for the economy. It's good for us as consumers too when people are able to better choose professions that fit their preferences and skills. All right. And then finally, what challenges remain to be to be addressed concerning women in the workplace? Yeah, so I think this question about women in leadership and and is is a ongoing one. If we look at the gender wage gap and how it's closing, it's it's getting stuck most at highest skilled workers. And, and I suspect some of that is questions about how we view um, 
high-powered women versus how we view high-powered mm-hmm. men. And, and I think that's a cultural question that works. It's slow, but I, I think there's progress to be made, but I think that is probably a sticking point for a lot of highly educated people, women in particular. So. Well, Angela, thank you. You've given us a lot of insight into what is a really complicated question, and it's it's been so helpful in this segment that it's it's not just it's not as simple as taking the median right there in the middle and drawing all the conclusions that we can out of that. So I I so appreciate your your background, your expertise on this, and how you've nuanced this in ways that we might not often think about. So. Thank you for giving us a lot of a lot of good things to think about. A lot, there's good, there's a lot of good news, yes. but there's a lot of challenges that still remain. So wonderful. Thank you very yeah. much. For Thank, thanks so much for being with us. This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically: Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Angela Dills, go to biola.edu forward slash Think Biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.